Did you see that I went to the I got the lady yes, to me you look like Amelia again. Clark Um it's like it's kind of a gamble because, like, there's another person I go to and half the time she burns my eyes and also half the time they make me look like Groucho Marx. So it's, like, kind of... It's, like, this kind of fun, like, play... Risking my face in, like, a very low... Like, it's gambling, but not high stakes. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the level of, like... Um, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the level of fear I want in my life right now. A little, A little bit of, like... I like gambling with eyebrow coloring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Yaram is Yaram is um, admiring how how beautiful and menacing my eyebrows look after yeah. I asked a lady to to darken them and menace them. <laughs> I was like, "Is this how we begin the show now?" <laughs> okay, I'm I'm down. I'm I'm up for it. <laughs> Let's just. <laughs> Please describe physically how you've changed in the last three, what, two weeks? I, I, um, I have to go to a hairdresser as well, but... Uh, no one cares, Yarm. It's not interesting information. Yeah. They want to hear more about my eyebrows. Yes. How are your eyebrows, Tegan? Was it did, it... did it hurt? Uh, Sure. I don't know. It's just dyed, right? It's Or did they, like, how do they... They, like, put hot wax and they pull things off as well. I but don't know. They it's look the whole like process. you have more. How can you pull off stuff and then it looks like you have more <laughs> eyebrows? That's the whole trick. You pull some off and then like you kind of get a texture and you color in the rest of them. Okay. To, like, <laughs> but be more menacing. Yeah, it looks it looks very good. Uh, it looks very good. So that's Shut up, Yarm. that's how you've been <laughs> Nobody believes you, Yarm. That's that's how you've spent your last weeks. Uh Yeah. Since yeah. Good. <laughs> just I just thinking about my eyebrows a lot and then uh, <laughs> That's that's really what I do with my spare time, you know? I don't think about signs, I just think about eyebrows. Um, I just, what did I do? I Sorry, what? I, I just I just watched the new Scott Pilgrim um, Netflix show and like at every beginning of the episode, there's little Ramona Flowers, like the manic dreamy pixie girl. But uh, she like it always opens with like a little uh, short series of her dyeing her hair in a different color, and then like for the episode, she has like a different hair color. And uh, I imagine that's what you do with your hair uh, eyebrows, like every week you pretty much go through the process of doing something else to your eyebrows and so I think that would be cool that would be much edgier than you know I'm, I think I'm at the age where I'm worried that I'm not edgy enough constantly <laughs> I gave up on this <laughs> I, I absolutely accepted I have like zero edge I'm like as smooth as like a round soft ball no I mean like the reason I'm having this crisis is because when you visited we went to that you know punky punkness and you were like thrashing around in the mosh pit and I was too scared to go in the mosh pit and I'm like oh Wow, Yarm's a lot cooler than me. I didn't, I didn't ever expect that would be the case. You know, I always, I always thought I'd be the cool friend in this duo. And yeah, and to me, it feels very much like uh, what is it, like a third life crisis of uh, just like like be being very well situated, but then pretending to be like super uh, like underground and hardcore and like scruffy <laughs> and well, I'm like wearing just like comfy jumpers all of the time and have like a very nice home and so you should pierce something mm. yeah maybe i should or like get a tattoo but um that's an old question like what and where and how so probably no i mean obviously something plant-based just to be just for our pod fans yeah just like maybe this this is like standard hawaiian flower decal that you sometimes see as like car stickers or like in deck like in as like icons oh, the or the hibiscus like the hibiscus yeah, yeah it's just nice. like like a very plain like like it would from a clip art library and that's just like full on on my face that would be good 
Yeah, now you've alienated all of our listeners who have a Hawaiian flower tattoo. No, there's like very pretty Hawaiian flower tattoos, but I'm talking about like you you go to like Microsoft Office, you go to Clip Arts, you select the flower clip art, and then you put that on your your face. Maybe that's what, I mean, not on your face. Maybe that's what we should do for our 200th episode. You could, we can just, you know. (laughs) Get a tattoo. I mean, I wasn't it's, going to, but like it's it's very good content for a podcast. You just hear like constantly buzzing of the news, just like zzz, 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 for like an hour, and then shows up, and me just like whining. <laughs> Stop. Yeah, I I do like I have a very low pain tolerance for beauty. Have I mentioned that before? I feel like, I don't want to say I have a low pain tolerance because I just don't think that's true. But I think when it's beauty related, I like literally glued your eyelids shut, and you let me do that, <laughs> or like actually asked me to do that. Uh, yeah. for like some beauty treatment I don't know like your eyelashes I did something to your eyelashes I uh, I made you try to perm them um, that was because I was going to a wedding but it was also more about like me trying to control the dynamics in your and my relationship like I think by making you curl my eyelashes I somehow made myself the dominant <laughs> member of our of our partnership like that was as if there was ever a question <laughs> nobody who's ever seen us together would ever question that well, I think it's like it's kind of one of those tricky things because, like, I was lying down while you were putting chemicals in my eyes, but at the same time, I was making you put chemicals. You know, like you were also very afraid, like you were yeah, putting chemicals I, in I my eyes. I was definitely eyes. like while <laughs> pouring chemicals into your eyes, I was more terrified than you were. Uh. Yeah, I was like, I trust you, Yarm. If something goes wrong, I'll just be really disappointed. I won't be angry, Yarm. <laughs> It'll be fine. So I would say, like, even for beauty stuff, your pain tolerance is quite high. Mm. Yeah, but maybe not tattoos. Maybe we should okay, like I think good, get a tattoo gun. Like I've seen so many people like on TikTok like get their own tattoo guns and show like on like plastic skin them practicing. I would, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you can practice on a fruit, right? Isn't that what, like oranges or something? Yeah, or banana peel or something. Uh, I don't know. Or other plants, trying desperately to angle this podcast <laughs> back into a plant. You know, plants like bananas, oranges, tangerines, um, pears, probably. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun. I wanted to mention something that's actually... Oh, no, it's, it's not to do with plant science. Um, <laughs> Go for it. It is about bravery, though. So, actually, I think this segues really nicely from talking about how brave I am. And now we can talk about how brave other people are. Um, you might have already seen this, but there was an announcement that the Maddox um, Prize... So, it's the John Maddox Prize has been awarded for this year. And I had never heard of this before, but it's it's the prize is for courageously advancing public discourse with sound science. So it's basically when you're standing up for science in the face of hostility. Um, and this year it went to two women, neither of them who have got anything to do with plants, unfortunately. Um, but I still think, you know, it's interesting to discuss about this anyway. Um, the first one is somebody who was working with a, like, in the context of a medicine that was being used um, to remove excess iron. So it's people who have this disease called thalassemia, their body accumulates iron, um, and there was a new drug. And she noticed that perhaps people taking the drug had very bad side effects. And, of course, the the manufacturing company who were making the drugs were like, no, 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 nothing's wrong. Our drug is really great. Um, so she had to basically go up against them. So she, that's why she won the prize of, like, having to fight with this quite powerful company. And the other person is somebody who was challenging these claims that were made by a a device that is basically used for testing your fertility. 
Um, so it's to work out when you're ovulating if you want to have kids. But they made this very bizarre claim that this was like a very secure way to not become pregnant. So it was a good like contraceptive method, and it was like as good as the best stuff we have. So like um the the implant, the hormonal implant, which it absolutely isn't. Just to be clear. Um, so she then had to fight this company, who then sued her for like a million dollars or something. They took her to court for a massive amount of money and she was fighting that. So I, I don't know. I know it's not to do with plants, but I thought that was kind of an interesting prize to be saying, hey, science is is cool, but you know what's even harder is doing science when people are, well, you know, I guess you're up against money or yeah. not so nice people trying to stop stop the nice science from happening. So yeah, it's a nice it's a nice prize and I kind of want to keep an eye out for it in the next couple of years. I do think it mostly goes to people in the context of like more medical stuff, which makes sense given, you know, what we're talking about. But um yeah, it's it's a cool concept. Yeah, I think there's not so much um like difficulty in communicating like plant science, for example. I mean there's a whole GMO debate, but I feel the more I look at it um, I, f I feel like it's like a very small battlefield with like like two very Germany. eager science sides that are fighting each other, but most oh. people don't care. Like they have like a gut feeling, but not to the point that they would like attack a researcher for speaking out or that, or that there is like big money involved or something. Um, so tell that to no, okay. <laughs> I'm probably like uh, doing some people uh, an injustice that are like that are promoting like quality research and then they 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 face any adversary but at the same time like whenever I was at like in, in science communication uh, workshops and stuff they often talk about like how do you deal with the problem of of like having like yeah, people sort of attacking your science, like with non-scientific mm. for whatever motivation, be it like financial or like um, uh, some 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 other like I, I'm liking the word here that they're just like convinced that something else is true. Like, uh, um, and most plant researchers were like, yeah, like everybody was afraid of that, but it never happened. Like, we mm. never had that issue actually. Like, even though we're doing like GM research. Like, I mean, this is also, yeah, the discussion. It's, it's you know, attacking the science is not the same as attacking the scientist also. So, yeah. you know, this is situations where it came to the people. Um, yeah. And it's also one of the, the ideas of um, how we litigate issues of um, sort of... So, so if, you, if there's like a retraction or if there's somebody, there's some sort of scientific fraud of these discussions, how we then go through that, it can't be done in the court of law. It has to be done in the context of science. If there's scientific disputes, it has to be argued scientifically we can't just like go and start suing each other over my science is better than your science and that's kind of one of the the major ground truths that exists in the science slash legal systems and where they they meet yeah okay i have a different question for you which is in fact about plants <gasps> what is the terror of bengal is it a tiger a tiger lily <laughs> I mean, you're actually pretty close. So it's it's related to tigers. Um, I think, yeah, the Bengal was maybe the link to the tiger. Um, this was something that I found because it is the cover shot from the Journal of Applied Ecology from their November issue. And that in turn is relating to one of the papers in the issue, which is called Distribution Drivers and Restoration Priorities of Plant Invasions in India. So the invader here are foreign plants, which have come in and become, you know, wild and 
and taken over. And the terror of Bengal is specifically one of these plants. It's also known the, as the common water hyacinth, or we can try, um, let's try the, the scientific name, uh, Pontidaria crassipes. Crassipes? Pontidarius crassipes? Um, and this is one of these plants. I was talked about them quite often because I think these plants that become invasive and get into waterways can just be a massive problem. Um, they can choke up the waterways to make it impossible for anything to move through, including human transport, including the flow of water. But then they can also like block the sunlight, so um, no no light can get through, and they can also then rot and you know take up all the oxygen of that water body. So they can basically take out anything in their way really rapidly. Um, and it's also really hard to control them because you know you've got something that's on water so applying pesticides or herbicides in this case is, is kind of difficult because you often don't want to contaminate your water um itself your water body itself also obviously they immediately get diluted when they touch the water so these are these are things that like can grow quite fast can be really devastating the the importance of water socioeconomically to people is obviously just huge um and then controlling them can be really really massively hard so yeah the the journal of applied ecology had this picture and um the front cover picture is basically a tiger trying to wade through this just mat i mean it looks like solid a solid mat of this water hyacinth um and it's a species um that originally came from south america but has basically made its way into you know everywhere in the world and a lot of places it goes it is a terror so it's really causing these issues what i mentioned already with clogging water bodies like you know suffocating fish and other organisms um out competing all of the native water plant species as well so just not giving them a chance either um there's also a mention that because they themselves are quite like fleshy they they sort of sit on the water but then uh, there's a lot of evapotranspiration coming off these plants as well they've got a lot of surface area so they can also dry out the water sources more rapidly than they would otherwise um dry out um some of the other names that have been given to this bengal terror are also the blue devil um or german weed um in bangladesh which is out of the belief that the there was a German Kaiser submarine mission which somehow was involved in introducing them at the start of World War One. Seems very propaganda. I don't know if like <laughs> it seems like you're like, who do we want to point a finger at? Okay, those Germans, they're a problem right now. Let's let's make that the problem. Um at the same time, like <laughs> um to like like quoting like you now because four years ago you actually wrote for for plants and pipettes uh, about water hyacinth um that they like they produce these seeds that can be viable for up to 30 years and so they they're very hardy they can stay around for a very long time and and, and especially with like submarines you have like these ballast tanks and so these are like mm -hmm. perfect to transport like biological matter from like one place to the other because you fill them at one place and then you travel and then you empty them during like your mission and um that like it's not impossible yeah. that Germans actually played a role in introducing these these pests there. it's basically like you know the old school method was a duck would eat a seed and then like later the duck would poop and then you know instead of passing through the body of a duck you pass through a much larger duck which is effectively a submarine, <laughs> a submarine. that's <laughs> kind of the <laughs> i don't know so i, I, I these things can be possible i mean yeah these things can spread really easily and, and i guess nobody really knows why and that or how and then 
people sort of point fingers. And there's so many, we know this about so many different organisms across the world where somebody just calls it like, this is like the Indian chihuahua or the Australian duck or whatever. And like, it doesn't come from that place, but it sort of comes from generally south. And they're like, oh yeah, probably Australia. Um, Another one in Sri Lanka, they call this water hyacinth the Japanese trouble. And that's apparently linked to a rumour that the British deliberately planted the water hyacinth to trick Japanese aircraft into landing on what they thought would be ground. But then it's actually water with water hyacinth. Like, this was like a very elaborate trap that involved... (laughs) Again, like, I have questions. Um... But yeah, as I mentioned, it can be a massive um, threat and really choke up these water bodies. So there's an example um, just from Wiki in like very early days in the 1890s where it got into the Florida waterways. They've got these kind of like, I don't know, alligator infested rivers. I'm basing this all off cartoons, so I'm not really sure if it's true. Um, but it, it posed such a big threat that they had to call in the the Army Corps, right? Like, So they're saying, okay, deal with this. Um, and as we mentioned, that is really one of the problems of these things. Like, They get in and it's impossible to get them out. Um, so as I mentioned, you can use herbicides, but you have the problem of dilution, you have the problem of pollution of your waterways. Some things else, some other things that have been done is they've introduced biological controls. Um, so they brought in some weevils and they thought, you know what, weevils love eating stuff. Let's put the weevils on the hyacinth, see how it goes. It kind of works. Like the weevils chew at the stem, which sort of prevents the water hyacinth from being buoyant. They eventually like sink, but it's not super effective. The weevils only live like a couple of months and the water hyacinths just kind of like, kind of win. They outcompete them. Um, so then in the 2010s, they also experimented a little bit with bringing in something called a plant hopper, so just another insect that also eats the hyacinth. Again, some success there, but like not amazing. Um, but the one I wanted to mention is a very bold solution that came about in 1910. Um, this was part of the plan by the New Food Society, and the plan was supposed to help with the water hyacinth problem and also... Um, provide an alternative source of meat for the population at the time. This is in the US, and the Americans were going through a meat crisis. Do you know what they proposed? Uh, like introducing, I don't know, like now beavers wouldn't eat that, but like some some animal that would feed on a hyacinth, and then the humans would eat the animal. I, yeah, bigger. Some, Think some bigger. Road, uh, a moose. What's the- What's the stupidest thing that they've ever tried to discuss trying to move into America? Uh the stu- I, I I I have I have no idea like I would say like a camel or something but like that was I think they they introduced them didn't they introduce yeah, them to Australia? Like, yeah, you need something that's going to be in the water. Yeah, a hippo. Hippopotamus. Hippopotamus is the answer. So apparently, I think there's, there's been some podcasts and some texts about this crazy idea of these letters going back and forth between people trying to discuss like the very real idea of bringing hippopotamus into America to eat as meat. It's it's crazy because hippopotamus they're very dangerous, right? Like they're not they're not friendly fellows. They're not like the beautiful dancing things we all saw on Fantasia as kids. Um, they're not great. Um, and apparently, this would not only have solved the meat problem, but would have also potentially eaten this water hyacinth and got rid of it. So that was one of the solutions. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but that's all I had on the Terror of Bengal. So that's the Pontedaria crassipes, um, which is a major weed pest pretty much everywhere in the world now. And it's now, it's illegal to sell it and bring it and move it around, obviously, but it sort of has persisted in lots of places. Uh, Tegan, do you know what a bladder cell is? I mean, is it something to do with bladder warts? No. Um, then, then no. No, you you find it actually on quinoa um, and amaranth and some other species okay. as well. Uh, and it's like, it's pretty descriptive. It's like a little c- a cell that's uh, like a bladder filled with a liquid. Uh, in, in fact, it's actually like modified trichomes. So you find them on the outsides of leaves. Um, and they form like little bubbles, li- little bladders of liquid on the outside of leaves. Um, and uh, you f- you find them on a variety of different plants, um, including like as I said, like like quinoa, and they're often like completely covered in them. And especially with quinoa, there's like tons of different varieties that have like lots of them or just a few of them. Interestingly, like per leaf, the number of these bladder cells is uh, constant, so they mm-hmm. just like very dense when the leaf is young, and then they sort of spread out when the leaf gets bigger. But uh, the total number of them stays constant throughout the entire like life cycle of the leaf which I find quite interesting because like the epidermal cells and everything like they do divide but for some reason like these trichomes these like bladder cell these modified trichomes they just stay the same so yeah just like for those of you who who don't remember like we talked about trichomes um, a couple of times already but like these are these uh, hair like often like pin like structures on on leaves that you find like that for example on stinging nettle are the thing that stings you it's like trichomes that are filled with um, liquids that then like pierce skin and break off and then cause like a reaction Um, but also like lots of plants have trichomes and very often they're like defense related or something but with these these bladder cells um they had no idea what they um, why they exist. Like in they in the late nineteenth century, they were described by an Austrian plant physiologist, and the this guy Gottlieb Haberland thought that it might be water reservoirs because obviously, like there are like little bubbles of water on the leaf, so maybe they have something to do with that. And for a very long time, um, researchers just like went with that idea, like they have something to do with water. Um, uptake or um, drought uh, drought resistance or salt stress resistance and so they thought just like because quinoa for example that has lots of these bladder cells can grow on like very salty soils and is very drought resistant and so they thought that had something to do with it um is is this the same kind of thing as a glandular trichome is that the same so i've heard like yeah so this is a thing where i'm not sure if my terminology is matching like there's I know that some trichomes have like sort of secondary metabolites in them. Um, so I think we've talked about this with artemisinin, which is um, one of these malaria, anti-malaria compounds. And this is this compound itself is found inside the, the glandular trichomes of the original artemisinia annua, I guess is the original plant. But I don't, is that it, the same it thing? It could be like in, <laughs> in the stuff that I read, they never mentioned glandular trichomes, but sometimes they try to like stick to one terminology when in fact like uh-huh. they could they, there's like an overlap there um, because you're like on a, on a good track there so in a new study now researchers uh, actually wanted to investigate what's going on there and the way they did that i found it quite interesting is they went to a, a quinoa field with like thousands or i think they they themselves say that they went through uh, through a field that contained millions of quinoa plants and they looked at 
a lot of them. I don't think they looked at all of them, but they looked until they found a variety, like a, like a random mutation there that didn't have any of the bladder cells. So that mm-hmm. that was free of the bladder cells, and then they took that, took that to the lab, and used that now as the like naturally occurring mutant to compare to the wild type that has the bladder cells. And now they could do all kinds of experiments to figure out like what is the actual advantage. And the first thing they did were like some some drought and some salt stress experiments. Um, because that was the prevalent idea that that they, these cells have something to do with that, and they found no difference. Um, they found like the even sometimes the the ones without the bladder cells, the mutants, would grow a little bit better than the the wild type in uh, very salty conditions. But what they found instead was that the mutants were covered in pests. They had like lots of like very small insects like feeding on on the leaves, while the wild type didn't have that. And so we're like, oh yeah, maybe it's a pest thing. So they had a closer look, um, and then they actually uh, analyzed the contents of these bladder cells, and they found like oxalic acid in there, which is a very common, um, uh, yeah. Uh, organic acid that is found uh, in, for example, in rhubarb that gives like the characteristic mm, taste in rhubarb. like that, that weird annoying flavor that like coats your tongue in a weird yeah. way, right? And that's actually like very toxic to many pests, like many small insects. Uh, and in, these, in their study, even uh, Pseudomonas syringae, which is a bacterium, which is like a very common like leaf penetrating bacterium that can uh, cause diseases in plants, even that mm. uh, was susceptible to these like high concentrations of oxalic acid in these bladder cells and as they cover like large parts of the surface of these leaves and also like partly over the stomata which are often the entry points where the bacteria would get into the leaf these bladder cells they protect the leaf and because they are the, the as i said the number is constant while the leaf grows when the leaf is small they're even more protected because the density like the, re- the relative density is so high in these bladder cells so when they require more protection when they're very young the leaves mm they have more bladder cells per like square centimeter and then when the leaf actually extends and uh, like the epidermis gets thicker and all other defense mechanisms are also like in place there then the bladder cells are spread out um, a much more apart and then like they don't have to be as effective anymore and so there seems to be a very like um good like or very clever mechanism for plant protection and now that the researchers identify that that these uh, bladder cells have this protective role this makes it now a very valuable breeding target because before in quinoa, nobody cared in breeding about these bladder cells. Like they were just there, but nobody Mm. would actually try to have a variety that has lots of them. And now with this knowledge, researchers could actually, or breeders could actually try now to cross in varieties that are covered in bladder cells. So they are more, much more resistant uh, naturally to like small insects and even some bacteria. And they like they uh, hypothesize in the paper. I don't think they did actually any tests that it can even deter some fungal diseases, which is always like a big problem in crops. These because the fungal diseases are really hard to treat. You you can't. There's not many like safe chemicals that you can spray to just kill off fungus and not like leave poisonous residues for human consumption on on these leaves. Um, so yeah, very interesting stuff um, from Max Which Moog was the study? Al. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the study is called Epidermal Bladder Cells as a Herbivore Defense Mechanism. And I think in current biology, um, yeah, yeah, in current biology. Also open access. Um, so you can actually go through the entire paper and, and the figures and see some of these like mutants. Unfortunately, they didn't include too many like detailed pictures of these bladder cells in this paper. So you have to find those elsewhere. 
Yeah, so I did I did find that um the bladder cells are a modified version of non-glandular trichomes. Um and basically trichomes can be divided into subcategories that are either the glandular type or the non-glandular. And this one says that the glandular have they produce or excrete specific metabolites while the non-glandular store more like protection, like toxic or protective substances, perhaps. Okay. Maybe. Anyway, okay. subcategories. So, yeah. Quinoa is not like artemisinin in this this sense. Um, or artemisia. Artemisinin is a compound, right? Uh, the plant is artemisia. Artemisia anua, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But so now we know why quinoa has a bladder or lots of them so what is the natural progression from talking about bladders we now have to talk about pea um more specifically pea plants <laughs> that's, that's not the segue <laughs> i agree <laughs> you're always like i have a good segue i can segue well from this topic that's not that's not what we wanted this is a highbrow podcast Yoram. <laughs> no it really isn't okay tell me about peas um, so, you know, like, uh, as a man, I can tell you that iron is very important for your diet. Um, it's something that most people crave. <laughs> as a man, I can... T okay, carry on. Jesus. This is like, like I'm, 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 I'm very tired because I had a very long day. And while preparing no, this, nobody I, cares I, that you're tired. <laughs> I slowly lost my mind. And looking at my notes, I can tell that I can tell that this is when I started to lose my mind. So no, in all seriousness, iron is a very important thing in your in in our diet. But especially when you don't eat a lot of meat and red meat, getting a lot of iron is not always easy. I mean, there's now like more and more like different like plant varieties and supplements and stuff you can take. So it's not that you have to be iron deficient when you have a vegetarian diet but iron is something that we could most people could have more in their diet for a long time especially from plants it was really hard to to get or still is uh, hard to get iron um, and then in the 90s they uh, some some researchers did some mutagenesis with chemicals and x-rays and they created two p varieties independently from uh, from one another that had like 10 times as much as iron, uh, iron in content without actually suffering from it because usually when plants like for, for plants as well iron is toxic they in large concentrations they require it for um the photosynthetic pigments it's like a very important um uh yeah iron that they need but iron too, sulfur clusters yeah exactly but too much of it is uh very toxic to the plant but these mutants of these pea plants they uh accumulated 10 times as much as the wild type uh without suffering from it and so everybody was really interested in how would are they actually doing it but uh, the problem with p is like they, they mapped it on the chromosomes and they could like have like the general area where like the mutation is sitting but they couldn't figure out what exactly what gene or what function was was affected and part of the reason is that the p genome is really big um it's like 4.4 gigabase pairs big um which is like 30 times bigger than what arabidopsis has arabidopsis is only like mm. one uh, 135 megabase pairs so like an order of magnitude smaller and even uh, the human genome is with three gigabase pairs um smaller than the p genome so you can imagine that it was like really hard for a long time to get the proper p genome assembled uh, but they did it in 2019 and people in the 90s did okay sorry so what <laughs> what <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so in the 90s, they just could map it like approximately to like a chromosome arm. Um, and now in 2019, actually the the whole genome like uh, was, was assembled and, and published. And with that now, some other researchers could do RNA sequence uh, analysis. Uh, and they were comparing this high INP mutant with the wild type and then could using this method and they said like they use like some new advanced technology that I didn't understand because I have no idea about RNA sequencing or bioinformatics um, but um, they they actually found a mutation they actually found, like could pinpoint the mutation to a single like deletion in one gene I think of four or five five bases so like a very small change in, in a gene wasn't that like a whole gene was missing or half of it was was chopped up just like four or five little base pairs missing. Um, and that was um, breaking the gene. And the gene is called Brutus. Um, it's mm -hmm. a negative regulator of iron uptake. So something that stops the plant from taking up iron. And this was like sort of uh, rendered ineffective. And therefore sort of the brakes wear off and the plant would just like suck up the iron and in uh, incorporate into its own system. And... Um, so they could not only show that now in peas, but because this protein is a very well-conserved protein across many other species as well, the potential is there. And here this is like really hypothetical because of, of course uh, more experiments are needed for, for this kind of stuff. But there is now a target that you can try in other crops other than pea to see if that also increases the iron content in other crops because this protein is so well-conserved that you could knock it out in spinach, for example, as well and then see if spinach then actually contains more iron than before. Mm. Um, so this makes it a very interesting finding, not only sort of like finding a little, little nerdy answer to a very long, uh, like old problem, uh, but actually opening the door for like new breeding approaches and new ways of, yeah, having high iron crops uh, or, and vegetables um, to supplement the diet. That's very cool. I mean, there's got to be a downside Right, there's got to be some sort of. I mean, the the, the mutants uh, that uh, were identified that had this high iron content, they had like names that were uh, pointing at some of the defects that they had, like something with, like def de uh, defects in the leaf formation and stuff. So I guess the mutants were not mm. super happy. Um, but then again, it's it's hard to tell if that's a side effect because this mutagenesis that they did, like uh, the chemical mutagenesis and also the X-ray mutagenesis, they don't create just like one single mutation. They cre create tons of mutations. Mm. So it could yeah. be that like the, the, the main phenotype that you would see, like, like poor growth, was related to something else than the high iron content. Um, so... I don't know if like the, the the plant is suffering, and so it could also like now that you know that this thing is like this protein is Brutus is something to target. You could also just like downregulate it a little bit, like just have twenty percent, thirty percent of it instead of having like a complete loss, and maybe that then just like doubles the iron content without many uh, bad effects, but still being significant improvement for the diet so lots of lo things you could do now but as always like this is like basic research D don't get like too excited like run to the shops and be like give me the high iron peas now um they like there's much more time that's required for that sort of sort of thing i have i have a um a paper that's also sort of got this cool forward genetics -y element you know old school science the way it was once done in the good old days um and also it's got a little bit of relation to to iron or to metals um 
It's basically the concept of off odor or flavor reversion. Do you know what these things are? Like off odor is like like a smell that's off, something that doesn't smell nice. And fla what flavor aversion? Reversion. Reversion. Like like in, is it in plant breeding like you you like try to make a plant better but the flavor actually get, gets worse? Like it I don't know, it grows faster but the flavor is is worse than the variety you had before? Is no, I mean, so the, the, both of the concepts are kind of referring to the same thing. Um, and in this, in the context I'm speaking about, at least, it's kind of the idea that you you have a, a change that happens, which ends up producing sort of a byproduct that's not so pleasant. So in, in this case, if we talk about soya beans and soya bean oil, um, you can get these kind of flavor reversions or off-odor production where you have the oil and you've, you've processed it and you've got a nice kind of pure oil. But then due to some reasons, um, the oil starts to have some uh, change in the fatty content and the fats produced have sort of a weird odor. Usually it becomes more beany again, which, you know, fair enough, it's soya bean. Um, but, you know, in the worst case, it becomes a bit like off smelling and becomes even this like fishy, unpleasant smell. So in the context of soya bean, this can be a pretty big problem because obviously it makes the oil less palatable, less desirable, less valuable. Um And it's something you want to prevent. And it seems to happen sort of spontaneously um, when there's exposure to light. So there's like this kind of photo photooxidation um, step, which catalyzes the reaction to to make um, some, some changes in the fats. So this isn't really a common concept as far as I know. I guess it's kind of known in like by people who are in this field and maybe more on the production side um with the soya bean oils but it was a, it was a strange new rabbit hole that i found myself going down today and when i was looking up this you know off odor in soya bean i found quite a few papers like from the 1980s which were a lot of like what is it like basically we've got this soya bean oil and it's starting to smell weird and fishy what is the thing underlying it that's responsible for making these kind of gross smells um And, you know, then obviously it became clear that this was happening when there was this exposure to light um, and there was, seemed to be some sort of catalyzation. This seemed to involve metals like iron and copper. Um, this is, you know, the case with a lot of enzymes where they need like an iron cofactor to be to, to react. So people are like, okay, we can prevent this from happening by adding something that chelates, that gathers up all of the these metals so to prevent the enzymes from getting their metal buddies that they need to work so they're like all right we can solve this problem by just shoving some edta in the oil that's one solution um other solutions that people came up with were um hydrogenating some of the the oils to prevent like sort of lock them in this different form to prevent them from getting catalyzed into the, the fishy smelly disgusting part um and then of course like the more common thing is sort of like some heating processes and that seems to be what's um happening more now as far as I can tell. So yeah, as I said, there was like some papers that were from way back in the 80s, but then I found a paper from just last year which was reviewing this process and these days it's much more clear what the different fatty compounds are that are responsible. So kind of what's um, being made into the smelly components and what the ultimate smelly component is. Um, Too. So it, it seems like we have a little bit more information. Um, and in this review, they also mentioned that these days, you know, we can basically do a heat treatment and this is basically the most effective thing and obviously um, quite affordable. But ideally, you know, we might be able to do some breeding methods to basically just prevent these 
original oils from existing or for this conversion um, from happening. So this is a paper I came across. It's by Satoshi Watanabe and colleagues in the Plant Journal, and it came out in November. And they were looking at um, some genes that were responsible for synthesizing a group of fatty acids that are furin fatty acid. And for those of you playing at home, furans are um, kind of organic compounds which have these like aromatic ring things. Um, it's got like four carbons and an oxygen. It's basically just, you know, a little pentagon attached to a, a long fatty fatty acid chain. Um, but these type, these furin fatty acids are the ones that were responsible for making the smells. It's it's good that you explain that to listeners at home because I obviously knew that. I obviously, obviously have the furin, furin molecular shape in, in my mind. Like I draw it every yeah. morning before I get up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'm technically a trained biochemist, but wow, I have no concept of any of this stuff. Like, I mean... <laughs> Like we had to do biochemistry 101. We had to memorize like all these different forms and and draw like the what the chair diagrams or I mean. I mean, I I did a lot knows? of that as well, but um, yeah, I, I I didn't come across furins. Like I I was fortunate enough that at one point I barely understood what like terpenes are and all of this stuff. Yeah, I think we can also comfortably say that a furin, whatever it is, is like. It's a side character at best. It's like a yes. minor character with a one episode arc or something. It's not <laughs> one of your major. It's not like a benzene or what. It's a benzene. I don't know. It's not like a insert important name of important thing that you need to know here. It's whatever. It's fine. But it is important in this context because these furin fatty acids are the ones that produce something called three methyl two four nonanidione. Oh, yeah. yeah, which of course you also, you know, and we commonly call 3MND when we talk about it, you and I, over the phone on the weekend. Um, so there's a photo oxidization and you get this 3MND produced and yeah, that's the problem. That's the smelly thing. So 3MND is um, the smelly thing. But up to now, there haven't been any reports on what's actually the genes that are making the things biosynthesize so that that make the furin fatty acids um so they wanted to understand what's making these furins and basically the next step is then how can we make that not happen and as i said they did some really nice kind of old-fashioned for genetics where you start with a bunch of mutants in this case they had a soybean mutant library which i'm going to assume was made when somebody just shoved a whole lot of soybeans under some x-rays in like let's say the 60s <laughs> Possibly. 70s? I, I thought most people of the experiments really like were like 50s to 70s, but then like with the pea plants, they still did it in the 90s, which is really weird. But I mean, we still do x-ray thing, but there was like a period of time when people were like really into x-raying everything. I mean, it was, that was also like the way you could do mutagenesis back then. You would just like blast yeah. it, or you could like add some chemicals, but the chemicals, it's like, then you have to wash the seeds. It's a whole thing. Um, anyway. Uh, so they had this mutant library and then they looked through those different mutants they had to see which ones had lower levels of these furin fatty acids. And from that, they were basically able to do this for genetics and work out what were the two the, the genes responsible for it. So they ended up with two different genes um, that were involved in furin fatty acid biosynthesis in soybeans. Um they could do sort of the the test where they used a soybean sort of cell culture, so this hairy hairy root culture, and they did they expressed these two genes 
in the, the the root culture and they found that that made lots of the furin fatty acids. So yay, when you have more of the product of these genes, the enzyme, you get more of these fatty acids that make nasty smells. So nice little confirmation there. Um, they didn't smell the, the hairy roots as far as I can tell, but... Um, and then they could also show that when they purified oil from the lines, the mutant lines, which have less of these genes, um, they also had lower amounts of the smelly 3MND um, and then less of the smell once they blasted that with light. Uh, so basically, they've now got a system where they can show that you can find a way to reduce the off smell um, of the soybean, which theoretically is, is a nice thing to to make non-smelly soybean? Yeah, like soybean oil. I just tried to remember yeah. when... Did I ever use soybean oil? I mean, it must have some importance, but um, like I like to eat soybeans in many different shapes and, and forms, but rarely ever do I eat the oil. But well, I mean, I'm, the product has oil in it anyway, so I guess it can... Yeah, so probably like the, the holes. But yeah, I think it, it is more of a problem in the purified oil because... Ideally, you want purified oil to only smell oily and not to smell weirdly beany. So. Yeah. Oh, I have I have one more thing. I have, like, yeah, I have a favorite plant, I think. Let's do uh, that. Oh. Uh, My favorite plant. Yeah, I have a favorite plant today, and it is Leucopogon crypt. Tanthus. Um, the Leucopogon, it's the species name. There's tons of them in my country, which is great. Um, and the Cryptanthus, the cryptic part means that it's kind of hidden. And the Anthus is referring to the flowery part, so it's kind of got a hidden flower. Um, I think it just has a small flower. Um, but more specifically, the flower is now hidden because this species is very much extinct. It was first described in the late 1800s um, by Mr. George Bentham over in my part of Australia, in fact, in the southwest of Western Australia. That's where it's endemic. Um, and by the late 90s, okay, the 1990s, not the 1890s, but in any case, by the late 90s, it was no longer around and it was officially declared as extinct. The reason it is my favorite plant today is because it is objectively the best plant. Um, <laughs> of course, it's always difficult for us to decide what is the best plant. Uh, in this case, we're using the very important DEXSCO score, um, which is a score established by Rochetti and colleagues in a article that came out in Nature Plants last Christmas. And it is identifying the plants that are the best candidates for de-extinction. So they created a list, they checked it twice, um, and they had 160 species of plants that are extinct in the wild, technically gone. But they looked through the possibility of plants in combination with plants where we actually have specimens of them in the herbarium and therefore have some potentially dried seeds. They then made a link of all of these extinct taxa, which they, they got, I think, 360 in the end of these kind of like what we think is out there that we could de-extinctify. Um, and then they did some sort of um, prioritization. And it was based on 
how to maximize sort of the evolutionary uniqueness. So you want to prioritize the plants that sort of there's nothing like them. They're they're don't have common siblings that are still alive. So they they've they've got a lot of value just because they're they're very genetically or evolutionarily different. Um and then you also have to give them a score based on the age of the specimen in the herbarium and the chances that the seed has itself like has been stored well and also that those seeds have good longevity. So this score is then based on the fact that you actually can bring that plant back to life, as it were. Um, and in the end, they sort of identified, yeah, these 161 extinct species, which they thought were possible. They ranked them, and as I said, the the best of these, the top of the list, was this um, little southwest Australian plant. I just wonder, like, when they were so preoccupied with like figuring out if they actually could de-extinctify it, did they actually stop to think if they should? Wow, <laughs> what what a great quote! Um, thank you, Jeff. Uh, Yoram has a complete lack of shame and just so like please with myself. There. I just, just did this for myself. <laughs> no shame. Yeah, so I'm actually I think we should leave that in because it actually so I found out about this paper. We missed it. It came out last last Christmas, as I said, so in December. Um I didn't see it then. But I, I saw it because I was looking at random things and then I saw something about de-extincting like these megafaunas there's always these discussions about how we should bring back woolly mammoths or we should bring back like (laughs) giant sloths like who doesn't want a giant sloth in their backyard um and these are always like super controversial like discussions and also a bit like very hypothetical because how how even like how are we going to get a woolly mammoth back um so then i was like oh I haven't seen much about plants and I was thinking about this is often the thing where it is very controversial when you talk about animals, but when you talk about plants, these things often, they're less controversial partially because nobody really thinks about plants that much. So even like another another issue that I, I come across um, recently is, you know, with climate change and habitat loss, there's a discussion about whether we should move species. Like you take a, a cat that has... Has is about to lose its home because of climate change or whatever, and you move it to a completely new location where it never hopefully, existed before. Hopefully, my house. Sure, maybe not a cat because a cat is a terrible example because usually it eats everything around it. But like you know, a bird, a, an endangered bird, and it's on a mountain, and that mountain is about to be wiped out by logging. Is it okay to put that bird on the next mountain, or is it okay to put that bird on a different mountain where like there's different climate where it won't be killed by climate change? And this is like a really active discussion. And again, like when it comes to a bird, and especially when it comes to a giant sloth or I don't know a wolf or whatever, it is a very controversial topic. But when it comes to trees, it's actually not that controversial because we kind of move trees around all the time. Like we do a lot of, you know, we put plants everywhere for, you know, forestry reasons and in gardens. And we've kind of, again, as we saw from the water hyacinth, it, it can go terribly wrong. But realistically, we're we're much less scared of having a water hyacinth, a terror of Bengal in our backyard than we are of having like an actual Bengal tiger in our backyard, which, again, discuss as an audience. Um but yeah, your your Jeff Goldblum stealing from Jurassic Park quote actually came up in the article I was reading. So I was sort of um, looking, like Googling into this issue of like, what's happening with this? Like, have we been resurrecting extinct plants? Like, how, how, are, we, how are we going about this? Um, and the article I found is by Janet Marinelli, 360, that came out in like June or July, somewhere in the middle of this year. 
Um, and she is talking about like sort of this paper in Nature Plants, but also generally about the issue of like, should we, could we, would we resurrect dead plants? Um, and she mentions as a background that just in the last 250 years, like 600 plants have gone extinct globally. That's what we think. That's probably like a very conservative estimate of what we've actually knocked out. Um, and of course, we are knocking things out faster and faster with continued habitat destruction and all the nice, fun new things um, like climate change and invasive species and, and all of that. Um, yeah, and, and she says that, like, the, the plant de-extinction is very different from the animal de-extinction because there's no controversy as compared, you know, like, people aren't scared of that as they are for a wool, woolly mammoth. Um, and part of that is, I would say, because what you're doing is kind of not really de-extinction. I don't know if this is, like, we can maybe just... Like so, so with like a woolly mammoth, you don't have a woolly mammoth fetus that you're then you don't have like a viable thing that could become a woolly mammoth. You have to kind of go back to an elephant and start editing shit, right? Like you you don't yeah. have, but we do have the seeds, and the seeds like the whole point of seeds is that they are these kind of froze like they are these hardy storage of the next generation. So it's not really de extinction. It's kind of like egg freezing like it's like kind of cryogenic very long but it's dormancy like, of the seeds yeah it's exactly like very long dormancy and a little bit of like human intervention but like it's kind of like the IVF of the plant world it's quite like fun and we're not actually we're not creating anything new right it's 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 matter that already exists and it's preserved and we already do that on shorter time scales with like the seed bank at Svalbard we talked like earlier in the year about how there were already um seeds brought back I think into to Syria I think post the conflict they were like bringing back yeah. um plant species that have been damaged from there so like we already we already do these things short term so like this is just and also it's not like, really the extinction. Also, if a if a plant is like extinct, like was declared extinct in the nineties, like it's really been gone for like at most fifty years or something that you can't really yeah. find it anymore. So it's not that like an ecosystem completely shifted and would be devastated from a th from something that like phased out fifty years ago and is now brought back. Like it's much less likely than what if you like had a span of 500 years or 5,000 years that we, that you would bridge, then you could think like, oh yeah, maybe there's like, the, the world is different from when this thing was around. But like with 50 years is, is on evolutionary timescale or ecosystem timescales is, is almost nothing. So it's mm. a completely different question than like bringing back like megafauna that's been dead for like thousands of years. Yeah. But like, as I said, like also brought up in the articles about that, it's just not... Like there's actually a quote from a scientist there and they're just like, yeah, we're we're not reconstructing a genome. We're literally just germinating seed. And that's yeah. kind of I mean, yes, you're not doing it like shoving them in soil and like crossing fingers. It's like very controlled because these are very precious resources, but that's the um yeah. But then the flip side of this is that there's a lot less hype and therefore there's a lot less um financial interests you know there's there's a lot less push to actually do this because people kind of it's plants they're like meh yeah. <laughs> like cool what are you gonna you're gonna get this like weird little australian scrub plant like cool <laughs> I, actually, I actually know how to get people more interested in in this sort of plants um um that is my next topic uh which i i think we we are very biased like usually we talk so much about flora and we we talk so little about florists and I finally found a, a paper about florists. 
and so this is this paper. So first thing, in, like, what kind of flower uh, bouquet or arrangement do you like? Like, what is your perfect bouquet? Is how do you pronounce bouquet in? Uh, yeah, bouquet. In I I like um like sort of a lot of Australian wildflowers with like very chaotic, like a little bit of eucalyptus and like maybe some proteas. It's kind of what what colors? Um, so it's like Australian plants, so it's like green, but it's kind of not proper green. It's like gray green, and maybe some um dusky pinky reds. Mm -hmm. And how would you arrange them? Just like chaotically, systematically, symmetrically. Yeah, I like it like sp sprawly, non-symmetric, sprawly. Yeah. So you completely took apart the findings of this paper. So uh, this is like some sort of weird psychopath test. So where one, I'm of now you, just... one of the two is wrong. Either you are wrong or the paper is wrong. Um, so this is a paper where they answered the, the very important questions: uh, What do consumers like to buy when they buy flowers? And mm. uh, they used eye trackers and asked them how much money would they pay? And then they showed them a ton of different um, bouquets, a ton of different flower arrangements with like different individual species in there. So like the kinds of flowers you have in there, the way they were arranged, like symmetrically or non-symmetrically or like following a line or a curve. Um, then uh, the colors, would they would be just like a single color, sort of all from the same hues of one color, like reds with pinks and some like purples together or something like very mixed, like a yellow and a red and a green uh, stuff together. Uh, I showed them that and then they analyzed all of this systematically and figured out uh, that in at least the U.S., um, consumers that they that they surveyed with this, they like roses, they like symmetrical uh, bouquets, and they like them when they have all the same hues. So not like monocolor, not just like only reds, but reds and pinks and purples um, and roses together. And they would pay significantly significantly more money if a rose is part of the arrangement than if no rose is there. And they particularly didn't care for chrysanthemums. 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 Exactly what I was saying. Um, yeah. So, yeah, finally, finally, we have the answer from this thing, from this published research about um, what people like. I mean, this research was paid for by the Florist Marketing Agency of the United States or something. So you can see yeah. where the interest in this by comes from. <laughs> but now, now, now we know. Um, but then they end, at least in like the, the press text that I read for it, they say like, yeah, but it still leaves room for florists to express themselves uh, just because consumers would prefer that doesn't mean that there's no value in doing like very fancy floral arrangements that um, deviate from that. I mean, like roses, roses are kind of the the diamond of the the plant world, right? It's one of these, yeah. Like <laughs> it's a pretty people have artificially, comparison. like it's exactly that. It's like they've they've had their value artificially amped up because they've somehow become associated with the idea of true love, right? Like you give red roses if you love someone, and like a red rose has no more value than any other flower, but it's somehow yes. got this like. Yes. I think, like, yeah. I guess we also have good ways of growing them so that they maintain their bud-like properties for a long time. So, like, we've managed to find ways to grow them so that they open very slowly. They last longer than some other flowers. Um, but, like, realistically, I think it's all hype. Yes, yes, I think uh, I think so Scam. as well. Scam. Uh, just like diamonds where, like, you can make cheap diamonds in, in labs and they're perfectly fine. They're, like, very good diamonds but um, because of, like, the market and the way they are sold and everything, people 
think they need like mined diamonds and that they and they have to pay like what is it like three months or like a year's salary on it or something yeah i think three months of your salary should go towards an engagement ring that's the something like that and that's like that's completely made up like there's no no basis for this in the production of diamonds or the quality of diamonds or anything of that um and i think it's very similar with roses like fortunately they don't cost like three three months worth of of income um, Yorma and I are going to have some very firm words behind the scene about whether it's appropriate to bring, <laughs> bring florists into the podcast, given that I'm already giving Yorma a lot of leeway with some of the, the random cat facts he brings in. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a very good cat fact today. All right, let's do a it's cat fact. actually a cat. Cat fact. We talked a lot about like the the Bengal tigers uh, today, and it sort of like ties in with that that our house cats often think and behave like they they would be a real tiger, and there's like not a very good reason, but there's like some reason for it, um, which I found quite interesting. Is that all cat species, like from house cats to wild cats to large cats, um, they share an incredible amount of DNA with each other. Like the chromosomes are very, very similar, which is uh, very uh, crazy. It's like there's now an, like a new DNA sequencing technology that's called trio binning. I tried how to does, figure how does that understand. Work, I tried to understand it. I, <laughs> I couldn't find a good explanation of what it is. So we just have to like there's a new magical DNA sequencing technology, and with that they could. Um, uh, very get very good accurate readings of the DNA and they could compare um, these uh, these like repeat segments so these areas where you have like repeats of the same sequence in the DNA um, and with that they could figure out that uh, like cat genomes are very very similar f uh, between one another and there's only like s some like small differences um, they could find that for example lions have uh, fewer genes in these repeats uh, that are related to pheromones because they live differently from from tigers where like lions they live in packs so they don't have to uh, rely so much on smelling other like lions to to receive uh, information about them where tigers they live solitary so like they pee on a bush and another tiger comes around there a while later and then smells the pheromones and understands something from the first tiger um so these are like small differences that they could find there um but apart from that, they mostly figured out that like all of them are just like very, very similar, and that's why our house cats, th first of all, think that they're tigers. But also, like house cats domesticated themselves, like they just like rocked up to human settlements at one point, where it's just like, yeah, we're living with you now. That could happen with tigers and lions as well, is my understanding from this. So my next Take goal is message. to just like get a get a tiger to do domesticate itself at my home. <laughs> And with that, I think that's that's everything. Um, yeah, I'd like to mention that all of Yoram's last fact was written in cap locks on our note sheet, so that's probably a sign of the mental decay we've reached today. It might be time for us to all go to sleep, respectively. If you want to reach out to us, we are sometimes on Facebook and Instagram at Plants and Pipettes. We're on X at Plants for Pets. No, I mean, I we technically are. I haven't in there are. in, like, months, no. Uh, we're on Mastodon. Plants and Pipettes at podcast.social. Yeah, or we have www.plantsandpipettes.com if you want to read some of our old blogs on the topic of plant science. And also you find all of the links to the papers that we discuss on the show. Like for, for those of you who might have never checked, like all of that is on the website. So if you find anything interesting, 
find yeah, links there to click. Go read the papers, tell us how we were no, completely don't, wrong don't. because we only read the title in the abstract. Don't. Feel free. No. Um, yeah, write, write us those, those complaints on our Facebook and our Instagram that we don't often check. Um, yes, uh, thank you for listening. <laughs> and... Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>